Welcome to Wolves and Wheat Podcast, a podcast about the interconnections between biology and history. I'm one of your co-hosts, William. And I'm the other co-host, Balint. If you're interested in the topics we talk about and want to dive in further, you can find links and show notes on our website, www.wolvesandwheatpodcast.com. Or if you have questions or comments, reach out to us through email at wolvesandwheatpodcast at gmail.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This is Volume 1, Episode 2, To Hunt or Not to Hunt. So last time we went over some of the environmental and climactic changes that even made this shift to agricultural possible. So the next thing we should look at is why would humans even want to make this fundamental change? Well, the old school explanation that's kind of outdated now is that Farming provided humans with better quality of life when it comes to nutrition or the amount of time and energy invested in procuring food. But more recent evidence, especially studies that were conducted within contemporary hunter-gatherer tribes in the 1950s and 60s, showed that it's not really the case so that hunter-gatherers have more varied diets and they're more resilient to environmental changes such as yearly weather changes and crop failure. So you mentioned that hunter-gatherer societies actually had an advantage over agricultural societies in terms of the dietary and nutritional value of their food sources, and as well as they were more resilient and resistant to climatic changes. Can you go into a little bit more of detail on those things? Yeah, sure. So about variety and selection, there's a really interesting article written by Richard Lee in 1968, where he conducted a study that he he lived among a primitive hunter-gatherer tribe living in the Kalahari Desert in modern-day Botswana. And what he found is that uh, these tribesmen got about 90% of their plant food intake from only 23 plant species, even though in their habitat, the number of edible plant species is 85. So uh, they only eat about one-fourth of of all the possible edible plant species. And it's similar with animals. So their meat, the meat that they consume, comes from 54 species, uh, and the vast majority of that meat comes from only 17, whereas the total number of animal species in their habitat is 223. So that shows that, uh, once again, like uh, they're very selective in what they eat and from where they get their nutrients, and that gives them a large amount of flexibility because they can, if one of their food sources, one of the species is declining in number, or if one of their food sources is depleted or diminished, then they can change their diet accordingly and start consuming other species or other sources. So that means that they're more flexible. And also, just as I mentioned, their diets are more varied because of that, because they get nutrients from so many different sources, it means that they're more balanced when it comes to both macronutrients, such as proteins, carbohydrates, fats, but also micronutrients such as vitamins. Uh, And 
the resilience part comes from the fact that like all of these both plant and animal species are already native to the area where the hunter and gatherer tribes live, tribe lives. So uh, that means that these species are more adapted to that environment. So the the species themselves are more resilient against short-term environmental variability. Whereas uh, agriculturalists often introduce their cultivated crops into areas that are less ideal for those plants, and that uh, makes them more prone to crop failure. For example, droughts. Huh. Okay, so if the hunter-gatherers had an advantage with a more varied and higher nutritional value uh, diet, and were also more guarded against crop failure, so they had higher resiliency in terms of their food sources. Um, so did agricultural have like a lower uh, labor cost? Like, did they put in less time than hunter-gatherers to get around the same amount of food? Well, that's what you would think, and the surprising answer is no. So uh, once again, going back to the study performed by Lee, but actually a number of different studies performed on other hunter-gatherer tribes came up with similar numbers that in such a community, a food producer, which is like an adult, so it excludes the children and the elderly, so a, a producer spends about 15 hours per week collecting the necessary amount of food, which amounts to 780 hours per year per person. And uh, studies conducted on primitive agriculturalist tribes uh, show that this amount for agriculturalists ranges between 900 to 1400 hours per year per person. So actually, this is very surprising, but hunting and gathering actually takes less time and energy uh, when it comes to labor costs than agriculture. So that, that seems really interesting to me. So if hunter-gathering seemed advantageous over agriculture in all these respects, in terms of diet, in terms of flexibility, resiliency, even labor costs, then is there maybe something we're missing in our understanding about prehistoric humans that might have uh, also accelerated and helped lead to this culture and economic shift? Yeah, so uh, what we... What is very important that we understand is that hunter-gatherers weren't living in perfect harmony with nature. Uh, they used, uh, they actively manipulated and, ch and shaped their own environment in ways that uh, made it more advantageous for them. One very good example is that they regularly burned patches of the vegetation for certain areas, and that had both like a very short-term and a longer-term effect. The short-term, obviously, is that all the animals that were fleeing from the spreading fire were becoming easy prey, so it was a sort of haunting tactic. But also, uh, as, the, as the fire burned out uh, and all the ashes were left behind, that area became a new ground for uh, fast-growing, fast-spreading plant species. So that means that this way humans could influence uh, their area in a way that it helped the spread of certain plant species compared to other ones. Wow, so like early humans weren't like Snow White? They didn't have like 
the birds making their beds and singing for them? No, not really. I mean, I wish, but no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so as I just said, uh, humans consciously manipulated the environment. It's not, it's not just a unique the human trait. So if you think about other animals, they often do something very similar. So for example, beavers build dams and create their own sort of like micro-environment where they are more comfortable. And also termites uh, are building uh, these termite hills or forts uh, where the inside of their habitat uh, has a very controlled environment. In terms of humidity or temperature, it's very different from the outside. So if you think about all these termite hills in Australia or in Africa, the outside is really hot and dry, whereas the inside is uh, is a lot more balanced. And it so uh, they also actively shape their own environment. So humans are not unique in this uh, aspect, and very likely uh, they uh, shape the, uh, their environment in a way to produce an order that, uh, that they saw as culturally more desirable. And and a very uh, useful source for this episode that I'm going to quote from here uh, is a book written by Professor Mark Nathan Cohen titled The Food Crisis in Prehistory, where he writes about this aspect, quote, No doubt such desirability included reliable supplies of food that need not have been confined to them, end quote. So if you kind of think about that in modern terms, it's like when we have like food delivery services and stuff like that, or like Amazon, where we want to have food or we want to have certain uh, products, but we don't want to be confined to the area th uh, that you have to be to physically be to get them. We want to be able to get them with the, like having the freedom to choose which location we consume them. Yeah. So last time we mentioned that the shift from hunter-gatherer to agriculture was a very gradual one. It didn't just happen overnight. Like humans didn't just wake up and suddenly think, hey, I want to be out farming. This, this seems better than, you know, hunting and gathering. Um, so there must have been some intermediate stages um, that led to humans not having to be confined by the source, food sources. Can you go over what some of those were? Yeah, so uh, this is the point that kind of what it boils down to, and uh, that thing is population growth and population pressure. So uh, as we established earlier, uh, it wasn't really advantageous to to start changing towards agriculture because uh, hunting and gathering has has been going pretty well for humans for the most part, but uh, what happened is that as populations uh, kept growing, uh, it induced people to start looking for those less desirable food sources that we mentioned earlier. And by less desirable, I mean food sources that had lower nutritional value or food sources that required uh, more time to collect or prepare in order to make them edible. And uh, some of these less desired uh, food sources be, uh, were plants that kind of became the staple for, uh, for like a controlled 
uh, sowing and reaping process. And there's an interesting article uh, written by Harris in 1989 that shows like, the four stages uh, that he describes as the four stages of uh, agricultural transition. And it starts off, uh, as, so the first stage is called wild plant food procurement, which is pretty much what we described earlier. So this is basically the gathering part of hunting and gathering. So uh, the population that does this occasionally burns the vegetation, so it reduces competition across uh, different plant species and helps propagate the growth of certain plant species that it deems more desirable. Uh, and it collects fruits, seeds, tubers, etc. from its environment. So the second stage is what he calls wild plant food production with some tillage where some of the land is allocated to, to sowing and harvesting seeds that are collected still from the wild species. So this uh, includes uh, some sort of maintenance, so to say, so for example, weeding, but also uh, storing some of the harvested seeds for later and selecting desired characteristics uh, within the plants. And then this leads to uh, phase three, which is called cultivation with systemic tillage, uh, which is basically just the extension of the previous step. So now we're kind of like halfway between hunting and gathering and agriculture. So more and more land is allocated to, to systemic farming, where these, uh, these selected plant species are sown and then uh, taken care of and then collected. So uh, all the all the activities that were introduced in the previous step are sort of like expanded and intensified. And also during this step, nomad nomadic lifestyles are replaced by sedentary lifestyle because people are more incentivized to stay in one location uh, as they already invested so much time and energy in maintaining these plots. And this leads to the last step, agriculture, uh, with the emergence of the new pheno and genotypes of these cultivated plants, uh, as through like centuries or thousands of years of selection, they become genetically different from their counterparts found in the wild. Okay, cool. Thanks for uh, going over what some of those steps were that uh, helped transition from hunting and gathering to an agricultural based society and these intermediate steps were also made easier by the other environmental aspects that we explained in detail in the first episode so the rising co2 levels and the increased precipitation led to faster plant growth and the takeover of more forest lands to wider grasslands also led to an extinction of these megafauna which was a loss of more desired food sources for humans, which is another reason why they had to turn to these less desirable food sources. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, one of the reasons why the humans also went through uh, these intermediate steps was due to population growth pressures and the need to sustain larger populations, which again was brought, ab brought about by these environmental changes uh, because of the glowing, growing global temperatures. 
um, this made previously inhospitable land more uh, habitable and more prone to humans being able to manipulate the environment to suit their needs. Um, and evidence for this population growth can be seen when we look at archaeological data, such as food remains like shells and uh, animal remains and things like that, and also the remains of the settlements in the areas. Okay, so an interesting question that I think we can examine a bit more in detail is how do we know that there was population pressure in the first place? Well, that is a very good question. And I think before we kind of dive into that, we first need to understand hunter-gatherer societies and their growth rates. So hunter-gatherer society had very low growth rates and pretty low birth rates. And this was mostly due to having to move their children around with them. So it was advantageous to have a lower number of children and a lower population because if you're a parent or have seen parents out with their kids, with their young children in public, then you know they kind of have to move at the pace of their children. Either that or they have to expend more energy by physically carrying them or pushing them around in a stroller. And hunter-gatherers didn't have access to strollers back then. So it was just a lot of energy to have to move your kids around with you all the time and so hypothetically you have two parents and they can carry a child each so it's not really easy to have many more than two children at the same time at least until they get to around maybe 10 or 12 when they can start producing more in society okay so even with these low growth rates uh populations still reach the threshold when they start to to feel it, so to say. So uh, when they start to reach the limits of of their environment that can support uh, such a hunter-gatherer society. So uh, how, how could they deal with population pressure? Yeah, so there were kind of like a couple strategies that uh, groups could go, go down um, when they were faced with these population pressures. And the first one was limiting populations through abortions and infanticide because, as I said, um, until the children reach around 10 or 12 years of age, it's kind of hard for them to produce in a hunter-gatherer society. So the reasoning is it doesn't make sense to expend a lot more resources on individuals who can't you know, immediately contribute to the, to the good of the group. And it makes more sense to kind of reserve those resources for the adult population. So they kept their birth numbers and, and their children number uh, a bit lower. Um, and the other thing that they could do is to eschew this population control and not have to go down the infanticide and abortion route. And they could keep their population growing. And some of the ways they did this was by migrating into neighboring bands where there was already a tribe there, but the environment wasn't stretched beyond the resource capacity so more members could move in there, or they started to move to uninhabited areas if they were the ones kind of on this fringe and on this edge of, of the population network. And if they got too big, then they would move on to more uninhabited areas. And they also, where conditions were permitted, they started using these less favorable food sources that we mentioned earlier, which, as we also mentioned earlier, kind of led them on the, the path to the four intermediate steps that lead to agriculture. And 
these groups that were facing these population pressures had to use a combination of all three of these things. Because if you think about it, you know, there's only so much uninhabitable land that then becomes inhabited by these groups on the edge that are facing pressures due to other groups migrating towards the edge. So then they have to migrate out to the uninhabited areas. And then at a certain point, these uh, uninhabitable areas become saturated with people living there. And that means that at a certain point, there's not going to be anywhere else to go. So which means that they have to make a shift to a sedentary lifestyle. So this shift to a sedentary lifestyle also allowed for higher birth rates. Since I mentioned before, hunter-gatherers, you know, had to carry their, their children around. But now that they had permanent settlements, that was no longer the case. And the cost to rearing children was nowhere near as high as it used to be. And, you know, there's the whole saying, it takes a village to raise a child. So now that they have permanent settlements and they're stationary, it's much easier to look after and care for your child when you have more people now involved in that process. So what is the evidence that shows that humans indeed started to uh, change their ways when it comes to population growth? So we have some evidence from a few different places. So first we have archaeological evidence in the form of food remains such as shells from nuts or animal bones and animal remains. And then we also have the uh, remains of the settlements. So what they've done is they look at the like the foundation of the dwellings and they kind of estimate, okay, let's say four people or so would be able to live in this dwelling. And then you take a look at all the other foundation, dwelling foundations in that same area, and you multiply those numbers together. And another thing that they looked at was the food storage buildings. So if they had large food storage structures or small ones, that also helps them gauge how close their accuracy or how close or accurate their guess is on the population size based on the dwellings. And they also have evidence in the form of skeletal remains, so they can do dating on that and and see how old they are and kind of guess about how many skeletal remains that they found in in these areas. And what they noticed is that all this data suggests that the spike in birth rates occurred like right before uh, agriculture started to become the dominating food strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, but just to play the devil's advocate here, uh, the increasing amount of archaeological records, could that be a, uh, just a result of uh, humans switching to a more sedentary lifestyle? Because I would imagine that if you have a permanent village, then that would be conserved a lot better than having only temporary campsites. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's definitely a good point. You're right. I mean... Permanent settlements are meant to be permanent, so it makes more sense that that we have more records of them still standing than the temporary ones. Um, So yes, while that could be the case, since it's now the year 2020, we have a lot more advances in uh, genetics and, and molecular dating and things like that. And there's a study done by Zhang et al., about modern mitochondrial uh, DNA testing and dating. And if you aren't familiar, mitochondrial DNA is always passed down from the maternal line, and it does not undergo recombination, so there are very, very few mutations that occur in mitochondrial DNA. 
what this means is that these lineages are highly conserved and passed on from generation to generation. And basically what they've done is they see what the uh, most common mitochondrial DNA uh, lineages are in modern humans, and they've gone back and they've examined skeletons from all the different continents and kind of were able to date when a lot of these lineages started to radiate, which happened to occur about a hundred or sorry, about 10,000 years ago, which is, as I mentioned before, right before the dawn of agriculture. So the higher number of archaeological sites is not just an artifact uh, caused by uh, a more sedentary lifestyle, but also it's supported by genetic uh, evidence that there was uh, indeed a population boom going on during this whole time. So when, you, uh, when we're talking about population growth, uh, usually there's two elements uh, to the growth rate, uh, which is the birth rate and the mortality rate. And we've already established that the birth rate was increasing, but uh, how does the mortality rate play into the whole thing? Was it uh, constant throughout this whole period or did it decrease or, uh, or how, uh, what was the relationship between the birth rate and the growth rate? Uh, wait, sorry. What was the relationship between the birth rate and the mortality rate? Yeah, so that's a that's a very good question. So as mentioned before, exactly the sedentary lifestyle helped to lead to a higher birth rate due to the declining cost of child rearing. But this uh, boon in and uh, child birth and, and growth rate, as well as the sedentary lifestyle, and as we mentioned before, people couldn't really move out to new areas to to populate. This led to a highly increased population density. Um, which helped to actually rise the mortality rate because people were living closer to their to their waste dumps, so the pathogens from those were easily infecting people, and since they're all living cramped together, it didn't take long for pathogens to take hold and spread around these populations. And due to this increase in uh, mortality rate, this necessitated another increase in the birth rate to kind of counteract and offset this decrease due to the mortality rate. And another reason, th another thing that led to this increased mortality was also uh, humans started living, living with animals for the first time, and animals also carry a lot of pathogens with them. So that was another avenue for infection for these humans. And we'll get into this a little bit more in uh, more detail in a later episode. But yeah, there was, there was kind of this um, interesting tug of war, if you will, going on with the birth rate rising, leading to the rising mortality rate, which led to a higher birth rate. And, the, and it was kind of like an arms race uh, of sorts between the two. And then another interesting thing that helped lead to this, you know, increased birth rate and agriculture and sedentary lifestyle was a cultural paradigm shift in terms of the thoughts behind ownership and property rights. So we'll get into this a bit more in later episodes, but basically the, the logic here is that in order to for people to stop hunting and gathering and, and shift to farming, they need some kind of assurance that the land that they're going to be farming will be defended and that they don't have to worry about people coming and stealing the crops and things like that. Yeah, so 
all of these factors culminated in pushing humans uh, away from just scavenging resources from their area and more towards uh, actively cultivating plants. And uh, most of these plants that they started to cultivate were uh, species that uh, are so-called pioneer species, so these fast-growing species that uh, inhabited clearings after fire. And some of these, uh, especially certain grass and legume species, turn out to be the ones that we still know as uh, staple crops today. And these plants will be the topic of our next episode. So thank you for joining our show again. And we hope you're ready for the next episode. Hey, 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 hey. Wolves and wheat every day.